Harriet Bulkley is a professor at Durham University and at Utrecht University. Her research is concerned with the politics and governance of environmental issues, such as climate change, energy, and urban sustainability. She is currently researching the role of nature-based solutions within the political landscape of environmental governance. Johannes Stippel is an associate professor in political science at Lund University. His research has traced the governance of climate change, and his current work focuses on how we imagine and engage in an increasingly carbon-constrained and warming world. Harriet and Johannes share a wide interest in the cultural politics of climate change. They have jointly edited several books, including Power and Politics and Decarbonizing Economies. In the last years, they have worked on a set of experimental initiatives that portray the possibilities of life in a fossil-free future. Harriet Buckley, Johannes Stippel, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you. Nice to be here. And... The story of our environment is, the, I believe, the most important story of the century. And you two have been involved in telling that story in so many ways for, for a long time. Tell us a little bit about Imaginaries and narrating climate futures. Yeah, so our starting point, I think, was that a lot of the stories we tell about the future are future worlds are quite poor. It's not stories that are meeting the world as it is now. It's difficult for people to inhabit the kinds of worlds that we imagine through scenarios or modeling. So there is a there's a kind of distance between where we are now and the life worlds of a decarbonized or a post-fossil world. So a lot of the stuff that we have been doing, which is together with other scientists or together with engaging people, has been about how we could inhabit those worlds be in them, relate to them, make them palpable, make them mean something here and now to bridge that kind of distance between the here and the then. Yes, I think we've had an, an interest in, you know, both of us work on this idea of transitions or transformations, how will society change over time? And often those stories are also told about systems or innovations or forms of disruption. And as if there is, again, that we need like wholesale change of the systems that we we live in. But I, maybe for me, especially because I have a very partic particular interest in working on cities. And of course, um, you know, coming from the UK, at least most of the cities that you walk around in, they have just around the corner is a, a mile post, which was put in in the 17th century to tell horses that they were a mile away from Durham City, right? <laughs> so cities that have so much um, in them that is still the same from from you know hundreds of years ago so the idea that all as we move towards a more sustainable future will be a, a wholly different place to to live in or to you know that it will be outside of our current experience it's it's not practical and it's not likely so for me it's always about the kind of imperfect utopias that we can imagine and and try to bring into the present as a means of thinking about what's the possible, you know, what's the politics of the possible for sustainability. And a part of it, you know, it's interesting, you know, I live in Paris, you know, we're living in the present, but we're always reminded of the past. And through these narratives that you're sharing and you're collecting and there's a story prizes, well, just, just describe a little bit of what was the idea uh, behind it and why did you think that... It was important. I, just to go into a little bit more detail for people to understand what those projects are. 
So we've done a different kinds of project. One was a exhibition that we call Carbon Ruins, where we play with a device of a museum. So it's set in 2050 and it's a museum of the fossil era, which we think then were between 200 years, starting in 1850 and ending in 2050. So it starts when Sweden has become the first fossil free welfare state. And we're looking back on the objects that we've left behind and we look at the stories that are told around the objects. And um, so that was, was one thing we did um, where we invited people to contribute with, with objects and with their stories. And that one, it's toured around in Lund and we did a mobile version and it's now an, an app. So it's, it's fully digital for those who would like to experience it. I felt that that idea of situating yourself in a particular future, that kind of utopian premise is quite useful. A lot of other future studies start with the idea that futures are completely open, that we can go anywhere from here. Um, and that you paint those possible worlds. But when you confront the climate challenge, it's, it's a sort of deliberating to start with, with the sense of, yes, we did it. How did we get here? What were the struggles that made this possible? And to look back on it, it's, it's sometimes easier than to come to terms with the difficulties and the hardships and the things that you had to sacrifice and the things that come when you look back on, back on it in that kind of historic, a bit of historical or romantic. Uh, it, it looks better when you've done it, when you're pa past it, instead of looking ahead of the stru struggles to come. And I, I think part of this, this work has been informed by work that we've done on the idea of experimentation that we see all around us in cities and elsewhere as means through which other actors are also playing, maybe playing is a word that some academics won't, won't like to use, but, but the way in which multiple different actors are testing out, trying and playing with what different kinds of low carbon futures will mean for their worlds for them as actors and organizations. So we see all sorts of different interventions in say the energy system in cities or in relationship to how might we live in a plastic free world that are that we describe as experimental in this in this way. And that in a sense we thought about what is it that experimentation does is that it allows the future into the present and that's in a sense what we try to, to emulate as well. And of these scenarios that you present, whether in story form or others, which uh, scenarios received like a, the greater acceptance or resistance? I mean, you're modeling. It's very important that we are able to model things and so we can work and improve those. So um, I think that we present a possible world, a world that could be inhabited, a world that could be lived. So... It, it's a, we talk about it as a post-fossil story world so that peak, people can situate themselves and tell the stories about their life, their city, their place within that story world. So it, it's a little bit like Star Trek where you have the, the Star Trek world, but you can have fan fictions around it. You can write a new episode of it. There are some fixed characters, but you can add other ones. Not everything is impossible in, in Gotham City or in, or in Star Trek. There are some rules to this world. We have some boundary conditions of a post-fossil world, but a lot of other things are still possible to imagine within that world. So I think that the kind of experimentation that Harry talks about, that, that unfinishedness of the worlds which we imagine 
that's very crucial for people then to find their place. A lot of other energy scenarios, for example, they are finished. There's no other place for you to be there or to inhabit them. So that to inhabit those post-fossil worlds is, I think, really crucial. Yeah, so, I mean, in, in a way, what you were asking us about this scenarios and modeling and how important it is to be able to do that for the future, in a sense, it is important, but it has become such a dominant way of telling stories about the future worlds that we will inhabit that it's it's become the is in some sense it's so taken for granted that nobody thinks that it's quite extraordinary to imagine say a world where you know we've reduced energy use from fossil fuels by 80 or 100 percent by 2050 i mean that's that's a relatively extraordinary thing to try to do but much of the kind of modeling and scenarios just sort of make it sort of normalized and mundane and also suggest that there are singular futures to which we will aspire where, for example, all cars are electric, hydrogen is the dominant fuel or, you know, so there's, there's kind of like one blueprint for the kind of futures that we might want. But one of the things we like about this approach to storytelling and narr narrative kind of uh, accounts of futures and also this uh, the genre of experimentation is that it tells us that those future worlds will always be multiple there's not going to be a singular low carbon world that we all inhabit that looks the same everywhere i mean there isn't a singular present so there won't be a singular future but at the moment the modeling and scenario techniques tend to kind of take us from the world as it is now as if it's one place and assume a relatively streamlined approach to another place which we can call the future and they kind of connect these two in a, in a linear way we're more interested in the kind of messiness and the contradictions and the multiplicity and we think that that also makes it more plausible and you also ask what gets resistance and <laughs> in terms of these futures and and i do think there's some certainly some of our colleagues that we've worked with on these kind of approaches did think that we were crazy at certain points. I think, yeah, unless you would agree with that. Um, but actually, we found it an incredibly useful way of doing interdisciplinary work because it allows people to bring their different kinds of expertise into telling these stories. And yeah, we, you know, that, that all of that expertise can then be treated on more of a level ground and come together in interesting new ways that maybe people hadn't thought about how their ideas would fit together. And so we have found it very useful for interdisciplinary work. And I mean, Johannes can speak more of how the Carbon Ruins exhibition has been received in the policy world maybe. Yeah, I think we have had an extraordinary reception in the sense that people love the starting point. They love to be in, in that utopian place that's that's useful for them to be when we tell them that, that we stop with an applause that we did it we are in 2050 when you felt a sense of relief to step into that world um then people take on different roles within it some people were is there as originators crafting the stories putting objects in building it some come to the government's world uh, more like uh, dwellers or explorers and find it and there are, of course, those who, who resist it, who, who feel quite awkward about when we talk about the last fast food hamburger, for example, and they, oh, wow, is that gone? And of course, they miss some, some of the things that we tell them about are, are then when we defamiliarize them to it. So, so of course, you, you, you receive that. Since it's that kind of imaginative exercise, people are giving up that 
the notion that things have to be that real. And you are in, in a, it's a similar when you start to read a book, you make that kind of contract with, a, with the author, right? you suspend your disbelief and you get into it to the movie. And when, when the exhibition is done and your card, you bring something with you and then you're back to reality and you, you, but you keep that kind of the space you were in during the book or the movie or the exhibition probably means something to you. It don't change it overnight, but it's inside you, I think. I believe you've known each other for about 10 years. You've collaborated on, on books and, and other projects. These projects are complementing your other work, which is uh, working more directly on politics and the governance of climate change. Could you discuss you know, your educational path and what you, drew you to your respective fields? Well, I can start with that because my story is much easier. I'm an academic geographer and I, I did uh, geography as my undergraduate degree and my PhD work. And I've always sort of known that, that I, I've really enjoyed this area, partly because, um, but, but within that, then I've focused on questions around politics and, and the kind of political response to climate change. And, and, you know, as I say, I mean, yeah, Johannes is, is one of my close collaborators, but I also have many other friends who are political scientists and they are kind enough to entertain geographers who kind of were very keen on every other discipline. We, we love everything about other disciplines. We're sort of magpies. We kind of come in, see something shiny, take it away and go back to geography with it. Um, and, and geography, in a sense, for me, is a very sort of undisciplined discipline. It doesn't have edges. It doesn't have a sense of um, what kinds of issues or agendas or methods are or are not within the discipline. In fact, we spend lots of time at conferences discussing, you know, is this or isn't this geography? And the answer is pretty much always it is geography. But one of the things that I think does really bring us together as a discipline is an interest in the idea of the field, the field site, the idea of engaging in some sense of the reality of where things are taking place. We do field trips with our undergraduate students, so they get taken uh, on, you know, when you're a first year undergraduate student, you get taken for a day to the Lake District to measure mud, and then it gets better after that, and you can then go on much more extensive and more complicated, challenging field trips. But it's an essential part of our education. It's like part of what the degree program has to offer in the UK. And we all also love doing field work. You know, very few geographers don't have some sense of of a relationship to a field, even if it's an archive or uh, a a historical moment. And I think it's that engagement with the field that perhaps attracted Johannes to the kinds of approaches that geographers take to the political science questions. And then at one point, I was also foolish enough to suggest to him that there was this new genre of fiction called climate fiction that he might be interested in. And I'm afraid that things went downhill rather rapidly <laughs> after that. So I hold myself a little bit responsible for that. But yeah, Johannes, you're, you're, yeah, you've, you've come maybe the other way around uh, to this subject, maybe. That's a good, good description. Yeah, I mean, I started political scientists who tend to divide the world into different kinds of levels, the international, the state, and the local. So, and climate change is started at the international level. So that's where I started. And then I, tr- then I, in a sense, I followed the object. So I um, started as an IR theorist. When climate change moved into cities or parts of the economy, and I followed and down to the individual level and to what individuals do, I followed it there. And, then, and when it, Harriet showed me that it, it now shapes the cultural realm and, people write books, write climate fiction, I I thought, well, I have to open that door as well, finding myself in a very different kinds of place. But I think I've always, in that sense, followed the climate and 
and then looked at the dis from at the disciplines from the perspective of the climate. But I agree with Harriet that the idea of, of of the field is is key, and I think what we've done with the creative project is to create to create the field ourselves. So we create that that kind of space within from where or within which people can view the world um, from a different standpoint to bring something with them. So perhaps being sometimes just tra traveling to the field and sometimes creating that field and, or, or the field experience because we, that means something to people when they when they have experienced something different that means something also for theorizing so it's uh, it's not just an empirical science it's it's a way of theorizing from a place and if that place is uh is in 2050 or if it's just outside london the contemporary it's a place from where you can start to ask questions and conceptual questions as well it's uh, disrupting some things you take for granted some things you think are normal and some some things that might be possible you know like on the topic of your guys's field and research um climaginaries advocates a lot for the need to advance the research field for climate and i'm wondering what the biggest roadblocks and hindrances has been to climate research and then implementing it in policy yeah some of the some of the issues remain the sort of interdisciplinarity side of it um, I mean, obviously, climate change is a pressing scientific challenge and an engineering challenge. And, you know, we have very much relied on science and engineering disciplines to show us the extent of the problems that we're facing and also to, to you know, to come with suggestions of the rate of change that is needed and the kinds of solutions that might be viable. But at the same time, with that has come a kind of persistent approach to climate uh, change as an academic subject, which is a kind of science first approach so that you establish the scientific boundaries and the engineering possibilities of the problem. And then you ask the social scientists to try to make it happen and the cultural scientists to try and make it better. I think so. So there's a very much a sort of linearity to that process where, you know, the, the challenges are seen by scientists and engineers as social you know, social barriers to the implementation of their good ideas and their and their the necessary urgency of addressing the problem um, and I think some of the challenges in trying to reframe that of you know and I think in the climate change world at the moment there's very much we're sort of in the in-between stage of this problem definition because we understand climate change as a systemic political and economic uh, challenge that is about the way in which carbon is integrated into our societies and we know that we need economic and political change as well as changes in our kind of the, the way that we kind of culturally connect our ideas of the good life and the future and so on and so forth and many scientists accept all of that but still the paradigm of science first and social science and cultural understanding second remains and until we can kind of start to try to reverse that of saying okay well what's the what are the social boundaries of this problem so, I mean, the idea of a carbon tax is always a very kind of useful one to illustrate this with, because it's one of, you know, it's one of the favorite solutions of scientists and engineers, I think, well, and some economists as well, that, that we can make a carbon tax work, or we can design and implement a carbon tax, then what we need to do is remove the political barriers to doing that. But the scope of what the social acceptability of taxing carbon is, is hardly ever discussed, and what it might mean in terms of the injustices or what forms of life will become taxed and more difficult and what forms of life will be permitted, all of those questions are, are left as secondary. Whereas if you did it the other way around, you might quickly find out that a carbon tax is not going to be possible because it 
oh, it goes over what the social boundaries of what what's going to be able to be achieved within the current and indeed future and alternative configurations. So I think some, a lot of that is where the problems lie. Yeah, the idea that climate was something that could be governed by something that was called climate policy. And the climate policy were then some kind of coherent policy field. We have water policy and we have policy for this and that. And if you just have the right policy portfolio in place, the thing we talk about, think about as climate change will then be governed. I mean, that we had that idea for, um, for, for some time, but now it's just not tenable anymore. I mean, climate change is just, it's just everywhere. It's in every question. It's, it's, it's there as, um, it's ubiquitous. And that's what we have been written about in two books a lot, that they, the ways in which you think about power and governance in relation to climate is so manifold. There is no place from where you govern climate or climate policy. So it's, it's not, is therefore you can't grasp it from the classical political science imagination, I think. So it's, it's political science is not a very useful starting point for analyzing power and politics around climate change. That being said, questions around power and politics is very central to all things climate. And it's often then forgotten for, for putting other things in the foreground. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, if you think about something like how do you govern fast fashion, oil production, you know, a transition in, in the major proteins that we eat, how people mobilize around cities, it's really difficult to think that you could do that all through something called climate policy, because, of course, it would affect welfare policy, food policy, education policy, you know, uh, infrastructure development and, and everything. And so that's both the challenge and the interest of, of this area of work that we do. Speaking of education, you're speaking of policy and, and top down, and but we all, as you say, we all have to be a part of this, and it can't just be climate scientists or politicians. We have to, we have to take part. And I was uh, speaking with uh, Kathleen Rogers the other day, and I have that climate literacy program, and I. I that was exciting for me to hear about that. Students at a young level will be. It'll be. I'm not sure how it takes place in different countries. You could speak about it in Sweden or, or in the UK, um, how for younger students, how they would be educated to be a part of it. Because I think that you ha we have to start there because for us all to be invested in this future. I've only just heard about some of these programs. I don't know actually how they're implemented and or what the hopes are for that, because it seems that that's a way that we can all be a part of this um, policy making when we're when young people are educated at a young age to really understand it and integrate it into education? I think the way in which we talk about education is interesting in the sense that uh, if we're talking about kids in school, it's an interesting place to think about the processes of change. You can do a lot with climate change education there with the kids where you can actually involve much more than just not their parents and their friends. And it's a place that... Potentially schools and the kids' education around climate change could be much more, have much larger involvement of the people around the kids. So uh, we have developed the Carbon Ruins exhibition as a teaching material, which will be freely available to Swedish schools from last week. So kids could set up their own um, their own exhibition and they can invite, they bring their own objects there and tell their stories about transition. And they can do, they can invite their grandparents and their parents to the exhibition and they I think that's those kinds to see this 
education as a site where larger processes of change can start and can emerge as interest. So that's, that's one thing, a much more creative and inclusive thinking around education. The other thing that strikes me, and I think that's all we who do environmental politics struggles with, is the how do you create a work with a sense of critical hope among the dystopias and the and the things that are that change is still possible and things that you can do and that that you all come into terms to to the things that we that we can't change. So that's the struggle with maintaining some kind of hope or, or doing that is something that confronts all us who teach environmental politics. I think. I think I'm, I'm still just about, I don't think, no, I'm not even over it. I'm not, my 15 year old daughter told me at the weekend that the 1980s was as close to her experience as the 1940s was to me. And I can't deal with that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm still, I'm still recovering from that shock because clearly the 1980s is very important and just happened. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, that, that anecdote is, is to reveal is of course that you know young people have a lot to teach us as well and I think you know today in the, in the news today is a group of Australian teenagers who are taking the Australian government to court over the extension of a, of a coal mine in, in New South Wales and we see youth uh, mobilizing extensively of course not only Swedish youth as we, as we saw with the Greta Thunberg over the last uh, years but in different ways and on their own terms and in, in relationship to the issues and concerns that they have. And we see different kinds of innovations happening. Uh, yeah, the selling of secondhand clothes on the internet is through the roof, for example, <laughs> amongst, <laughs> amongst uh, teenagers, at least in the UK. Um, there's sort of the idea of uh, making fast fashion a fast circular economy, um, which is quite intriguing and that that has come from young people themselves. Uh, so I think there's all sorts of dif different things happening, which we have to also attend for and make space for in educational settings so that children and young people can learn from one another, that it's not only a kind of one way direction of here's the world, we seem to have messed it up, can you not sort it out please, which I think can be, you know, also, a, you know, sort of dispiriting and uh, approach. So there's a way about empowerment i guess through education and and then and these kind of tools around the imagination i think allow for that because they create this kind of space as johanna said earlier they're open-ended so they can be designed and created in different ways going off of that i think the younger generations definitely grew up in this era of kind of doom and gloom at least i feel i did did you keep that in mind to kind of be more of a triumph rather than this like doom and gloom era if we don't do what we're supposed to do? It was partly deliberate, of course, to start with that utopian and that we were quite clear about the kind of future world that we started from. But I think some of the humor and the playfulness came as people interacted with it. We were more sincere to it and people received it in much more creative, playful sense and, and ran away with it for, and saw those qualities. So we, we didn't, um, it wasn't meant in that sense just as an, an, an upbeat teaching exercise uh, at all. Mm -hmm. uh, people find the, the humor in it. And I, I think they find that aspect revealing. And as things went on, we exaggerated that even more. So when more stories um, emerged in new objects, that became more and more important over the time. And, and when we hold storytelling workshops with people, those 
we encouraged that. And I think so. So the, we weren't there in the beginning, but it, be, it, it came through the interactions of the ones who, who visited or engaged with us over time. And in a, in a sense, then that sort of uh, the, the more humorous side of this kind of creative storytelling is something that we have tried to do in the recent book that we've uh, written called the A Rough Guide to Notre Dame. So I'm not sure whether either of you have seen, have come across this as part of uh, the project that Johannes and I have been working on called Reinvent Decarbonization. And, and originally we'd promised the European Commission that we'd write a best practice handbook. And I think it was about two years into the project that Johannes and I realized that one, we were responsible for writing this best practice handbook and two, we didn't want to do it. <laughs> so <laughs> then we had a good conversation in, over a coffee in a hotel uh, lobby one day where we said, well, why don't we just write a rough guide to the future instead? Um, which is a kind of conversation that uh, that you think you've only had once, but actually turns into a book project. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we were we we took then this idea of of creating a guide to the future as a form of a best practice guide, and definitely through that process, we tried to kind of embed humour and and irreverence um, and yeah, playfulness into it. But yeah, I, I don't know whether Johannes, you wanna kind of add a little bit to, to what the rough guide to Notre Dame does, reaches the parts that other rough guides have never reached before, right? Yeah, it uses the device of a rough guides or lonely planet. So it's it, it will tell you about life. If you were a visitor, if you were a tourist to Notre Dame, a fictional place on the coastline in, in Europe, and it tells you, a lot of things you need to know. If, of course, in the in the Lonely Planet world, it's it's a bit awkward to be a tourist. You want to be with the natives, so it's important to read up and not to make a fool of yourself when you're in a city. And so, this is why you need the guidebook to be along with the natives. So here, since this is a post-fossil city, there are some things you need to know about. There are some things that are where to stay and what to do and what to eat. Some things that it's tricky to get meat in the city. For example, you need to know how you charge your stuff and how you repair things. So of course you need a guidebook. If you wanna visit a place where you haven't been to, you need a guidebook. So it's a very useful device for that. And it's a tone, um, it has a rhetorical quality that people recognize. So it's, it's, you have it in your hand and you know how, it, how those works. So it's, it's a useful medium to tell the story about a post-fossil world in a sense, since people believe the medium. And what for you were the most, I don't know, the most interesting or challenging or difficult chapters to write? Like, can we, can we say this? Can we speculate this? You know, how, how sure can we be about this? So we, we didn't actually write it. What we did was to design a work, a methodology where people across the project could write the entries. So we created like prompts saying that, okay, write, uh, what what's the latest exhibition in the in the museum and what what is it called where sh where should you where should you stay three hotels and why so people wrote entries of 100 to 200 words on this it was a bottom up process of crafting the content of it and then uh, we and our colleague Paul Raven wrote it through and put the pieces together but the whole the ideas and the content came from people and we didn't then refuse things. It's sort of added up from people's interest to it. So what we designed was a process of imagining together and working together and getting the material in. And then people came up with anything from diesel punks to awkward restaurants and different places. And that, that became the book. 
and and yeah the the intention was that people should in some sense reference the the you know academic work and the the scenarios that they were working on in terms of you know what was the likelihood of when we would phase out uh, the use of fossil fuels for steel or you know where in, in that context where are building materials going to come from and therefore what will future buildings be looking like right so so in our kind of imagination where you you know like i think i wrote a an item on like you know a neighborhood to visit right and so in that that is tries to then implement all the kind of ideas that we had about what what will be the challenges for low carbon building materials from the work that we've been doing on steel and therefore what does that mean for what that looks like in in the place so so yeah so it, it's more this um a way of allowing people to kind of inhabit as we say you know this is a word that we keep we keep using but very much allowing people you know if you, if you give them a, just like a sort of scenario of, or a sort of roadmap of when steel is going to become decarbonized i probably look at it and go all right okay yep sure nothing to do with me right but if you instead say look you're in this future city and it's all changed because of the you know these are the things that have changed because of you know and you you would allow them to inhabit that one thing okay well yeah i can see that's going to actually be it's going to be quite interesting if there's only one restaurant in the city that serves me and you have to like you know have to book it you know six months in advance to be able to have like your one piece of meat you're allowed that year that's kind of interesting <laughs> so great right? you know it's a different way of kind of engaging people with, with um what these scenarios actually might mean on the ground on, in their lives i i imagine that both well you you have children i imagine you are prepared to uh, make um the personal sacrifices and others are less like, I don't know, like they just want to blinker themselves, but um, I, I don't want to speak in such like bold terms, but sometimes I uh, get afraid that people will not want to make those changes until like, I don't know, it's right in front of them and it's too late. I mean, what do you feel about in terms of, I don't want to say authoritarian solutions, but I mean, if that's the option. Yeah, I think this is a really it's a really interesting question about where the agency of change should come from for these transitions, right? And often we think, well, you know, individuals are they going to be able to to make sacrifices, to go without, to to change their lives in fundamental ways? Um, and a lot of people, of course, use the example of the pandemic to say, well, people are prepared to do that. And I really shy away from that because, I mean, the pandemic has been brutal for so many people's livelihoods. I really feel like if this is the only example we have of how to engage people in a change process, it's not one we should try and replicate very often. But I mean, I, I think I have two real responses to that. I think for me, most of the agency for change doesn't lie with, with individuals. It lies with those with power, capacity and resources. Um, those might be amongst, amongst others, uh, you know, investment holders, pension companies, large corporations and governments, uh, large um, large institutions such as uh, universities, the Church of England and others, who have sufficient, you know, who have significant land capital and knowledge holdings to which they should be, you know, putting those holdings towards these ends. So my sense is once all of those organizations, institutions uh, have made changes, then I think we can expect individuals to also make changes. But there needs to come from leadership, it needs to come from stewardship, it needs to come from 
you know, and you see, so for me, it's not a question of authoritarianism, it's a question of leadership, it's a question of, of those actors who have the most capacity and have the most responsibility acting first, um, and ensuring that any transition is done in such a way that it's just that those people who bear the most responsibility, those organisations, and as well as those individuals who bear the most responsibility for climate change, are asked to act first, rather than uh, asking those who have least to act first. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm quite committed to that. And, and while I do feel like many individuals feel, you know, they want to be able to show that they make a change on the ground, whenever anybody asks me, well, you know, what things can individuals do to make a difference? I always say um, they can make sure that they take a job in an organisation that's working and committed to climate change. They can uh, make sure that if they are taking out a pension or a mortgage, that they're, they're doing so in a way, you know, that is responsible for those things as well. So taking individual action, which is part of larger collective efforts, to me is always going to be better than, you know, saying, okay, well, just wear a jumper and turn the lights off a bit more, which I think is pretty ineffective, both in terms of how people feel about their action that they're doing and in terms of what difference it makes to the planet. Yeah, that was really well put. I agree to that. Coming off of everything you just said, I know in America, at least there's a lot of pushback because I think it's fear-based about larger regulations. What would you, what would you say to people that are just afraid of large change? Well, I, I think that we have to work with that. I mean, again, sorry, I'm very sort of, Johannes will come in. <laughs> He's used to this. But I'm, you know, I'm very committed to the idea that we shouldn't be, you know, we should be able to show that there are good lives ahead that are, you know, that are climate friendly, that we shouldn't be suggesting that this change is going to take away some of the fundamental things that people value and care about. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, okay, maybe you can't have, lego made of oil but that doesn't mean that children can't play games right <laughs> so it's like it's a question of sort of working with that you know what is it that we when we say we need to leave some things behind and give things up and do things differently what do we mean and what are the other things that we can do that actually bring bring value and how can we engage people in those stories and allow people to make those journeys for themselves rather than saying this is the journey you have to take I mean, Sweden is a different place than America, right, Johannes? And maybe people are not so, you know, not everywhere is pe are people concerned about regulation or, or, or change, right? <laughs> no. Yeah, Sweden is, is really the outlier in terms of thinking of collective actions and the that there's pro probably too much expectation that this just the state should should take uh, take care of the things. But yeah, for a long time, maybe climate, we who study climate, we... We didn't really see that kind of the suspicion that people have, and, and the the kind of of um, res I mean, we first we had resistance to towards climate science that was that climate denialism. Now we have resistance toward climate imagined climate transformations. That's a, that's partly similar kinds of your your first was resistance to science, and now you're resisting. Yeah, the kinds of world that with the pathways we think are necessary, and it's um, I, this resistance is just growing stronger in many places, and, and it's it's clearly a key issue for transitions on on how to make people to to think that these are things these are things that will have come to terms for things that are that are necessary or, or that you are listened to and. 
these struggles or the things you resist are really context dependent. So the things you you struggle or strive for in one place is really different. And it's um, there's not going to be one transition policy solution so that works everywhere. But clearly, the resistance, there's, there's new forms of resistance coming into play in many different sorts of places today. And it's uh, that kind of polarization is, of course, not making the task easier, but, it, but they're not going away either. So... It's a quick question for any kinds of, of, of policy making ahead here. So far, Johannes and Harriet have discussed the importance of institutions taking leadership in climate change action as well as the role of policy within climate change. They also discussed the role of their projects in helping people imagine a more carbon friendly and carbon neutral world, which I think today many people have a sense of fear, hopelessness, and just a general concern of where we are going as a world right now towards a warm planet and increased racial injustice and just so many, so many things that we're facing right now. So I really think this is a fantastic initiative because it really reminds people of the power of what they buy, who they support, who they vote for. Just everything that we do in a society, everything has an effect. And I think being able to imagine a future for ourselves, rather than assuming anything within our power isn't enough or it doesn't really have an effect, I think that's really empowering. As a rising junior at Columbia University, I am majoring in sustainable development and concentrating in public health. Many of the things that we're learning, it's very clear when I watch the news or when I'm just talking to people, uh, all the issues that that are within sustainable development and public health and all of these fields, they're all very diverse, but they all come together to address very interrelated issues. Everyone really has a role in in shaping the future of the world that we want to see even today right now. I very much agree with the point that Harriet made about the importance of institutions taking that responsibility to be the leaders and to have a sort of blueprint for um, for people to be following um, because sometimes I think it's, it's difficult to, on a small scale, to have um, initiatives or to have certain goals made unless it's kind of on a larger scale. So I think I think it's very important that institutions are very committed to being more sustainable and to being more conscious of ways that they can improve uh, reducing waste or having more efficient processes. And I, I really think that's a, a very great way to to tackle this issue because I think it empowers people that, you know, by working in, in certain organizations and by voting for people who pledge to take action, it's very productive to creating the world that we want to be in. Now back to the interview. And you both, you were speaking about the d different ways that we'll all adapt to climate change. And you've both worked or examined how it will be work in different countries. Can you speak about some of those, the modelings and some of them, just go into a little bit of detail about how um, you in Africa and India. Yeah, I mean... Goodness, I mean, climate change is really not one issue anywhere, right? I mean, even, yeah, I suppose from the perspective of working on cities, we can see climate change is a transport issue, it's a food issue, it's a, a heating issue and all these different things that we've already been talking about. And so 
what you can see uh, globally, and well, if you look through an urban lens, is that the way that climate change matters in, as an issue in different urban contexts really relates to questions of, of well, of development broadly and, and politics and agency as well. But in any one urban context, you have a multiplicity of these challenges. So some cities, and of course, you know, so Cape Town is, is obviously an example from recent past where climate change has become a very um, visceral experience for the city of, of running out of water or of needing to kind of think about alternative water futures at the same time as needing to deal with um, you know, a, a lack of access to basic services and particularly electricity. And so you have a, an economy, a, a country which is very rich in fossil fuels and where the, the um, you know, population doesn't have access to, to safe amounts of energy or drinking water. Um, whereas at the same time, it's being really badly affected by climate change and knows that it cannot sort of tie its future into fossil fuels at the same time. So. You have all sorts of different sort of challenges there, but one of the one of the things that we you also see in that kind of space is is you know still the presence of these kinds of forms of experimentation with uh, you know microgrids, off-grid solar power, new forms of economy around that, new business models, uh, sort of pay-as-you-go solar, which is being provided in informal settlements through to very very large-scale concentrated solar power stations that are being built by European multinationals in the more desert areas of, of uh, the Eastern Cape. So you can see all aspects of these kinds of transitions and politics that we've been, that we've, you know, been talking about and where Johannes and I have both mainly worked in, in Western Europe, um, emerging in, in different kinds of fragments and different combinations in different cities globally. And I mean, you know, a key also issue that we need to kind of confront uh, when we're talking about climate change is again this one about responsibilities where do the responsibilities for say the things that we consume at the moment in international climate politics the emissions the carbon imprint of those goods that we consume in the west lie in the countries where they're produced but of course they're driven by our patterns of consumption and that also then starts to shape what this kind of global politics looks like and what would it look like if we change those those terms so yeah, it's, it's a complicated issue to think about what climate change means globally and what it means in different contexts. But I, I think, you know, both Johannes and I would say that it, it's always kind of embedded into the social and political structures that are, that are taking place on the ground and that it can't be addressed. Now, this is a big challenge for the United Nations Framework Convention, the Paris Agreement, is it? it's very difficult to address climate change from the centre, right, from one organization and we've seen that over the last 30 years with the Paris Agreement you know since till we got to the Paris Agreement is that that's a key difference is the Paris Agreement tries to bring on board all the other actors who are needed to try and govern climate change in all of these multiple ways because it's not possible to do so without them but whether it's you know whether it's going to be enough too fast uh, you know have we got enough time to get these things done there's always going to be a question I know it's a, it's a, such a big thing to tackle. <laughs> Do you have one wish or one area that you like to prioritize? I mean, you have your specific uh, disciplines, but is there where there's not just being where not enough is being done, but you see, gosh, we could really uh, move forward on this if we really all apply ourselves. You know, when we started the last research project, we uh, worked together with the idea came up in, in conversations with engineers around sectors where 
carbon is not an emission, but where carbon is embodied in the things we make, in a sense. So meat, dairy, steel, plastic. So it's not a byproduct of producing something. It's carbon is in the very content of the things we consume or uh, eat. So that kind of carbon is much more than tricky to get rid of. It's, it's a carbon that is embedded. So when you try to get rid of it, it's much more disruptive. And it tends then to be that these sectors, steel and plastic and meat and dairy, they are very strong, close to the state, heavily supported. So confronting those um, petrocultural sectors is also very different and have different logics of chains to it. So I think that we find it very interesting to turn to those sectors instead of thinking of just uh, on, on emissions from buildings or emissions from uh, traffic, for example, which has been the, the visible things that we've been talking a lot about it in climate policy, but to think about these sectors of the economy where uh, we, we talk about them as formerly known as hard to abate sectors, because after the project, we think that there are options and you can, they can change. But when, when we started, the, these sectors were really seen as now it, it the the things are not going to change here. This is going to be like this forever. And during the project, we saw a lot of processes for change within these sectors that they try to imagine fossil-free steel or what a fossil-free plastic system might look like and craft pathways to get rid of carbon within those. The the cow is more difficult actually. It's it's you can't really <laughs> get around it. It's um, the methane emissions from the cow is more tricky to deal with. Anybody who's ever tried to walk through a field of cows and tried to get them to walk out of your way probably knows that as well. <laughs> They're pretty, pretty immovable. I mean, certainly, I think the material basis of the economy and and how we how we address these sectors it was a, a good project to work on, but one of the first in that, that sphere. And I think it will be an area where you know much more work is done in the next decade. I think for me, the other the other key area of work is what are the more or less unintended consequences of climate action? So there's an increasing discussion in the world of, of climate action in cities of how low carbon development or green development is being used as a means to achieve outcomes that have unjust, out, unjust implications or unjust impacts on, on communities, uh, particularly in the US on communities of color um, so things being done in the name of climate change, and they are in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, probably good projects. It's not that they are being done in the name of carbon or climate change and it's greenwash. It's not greenwash. It's just that the other impacts and implications of those projects are not considered. And I also think that about climate finance and the way in which we're increasingly mobilizing finance for climate change. But are we considering... Yeah, this other project that I work on in, in the realm of nature-based solutions, where we look at the kind of nature-based solutions that are being financed. They are primarily for carbon storage. And there's a lot of concern that, for example, um, you know, that will lead to the plantations and monocrops and so on, rather than the protection of nature or the res respect, respect for indigenous land rights. So this kind of, you know, as the kind of imperative to act on climate change just becomes growing, it can't just be a kind of, you know, climate first kind of policy. Um, it needs to be a kind of climate and, 
policy, I guess. Yeah, that's, you know, as many of my colleagues would tell me, you know, it's enough difficult already to be acting on climate change, Harriet, but, you know, where do we want to live in a climate, a world where climate change is addressed at the expense of creating huge amounts of racial injustice? Probably not. It, it's so important that you remind us of our ethical responsibilities. I, I think you say there's not just one solution, but I think a lot of people are praying for like one solution. And uh, you have to remember the, the many different parts of culture that might be stepped on for, I don't know, putting in the hands of maybe huge organizations and all, all those things. But so, so thank you for helping us understand that. And how's, as you have been both been imagining uh, climate futures um, and you sp spoke about how uh, your daughter uh, thought about the 1980s as being like the 1940s to you and you think on you think back to the past the things that we were able to experience and then a connection with the natural world do you have some like memories that you want to that's that's what this is all about that's what we want to preserve for the next generation one thing that came to mind and some, something that me and Harriet has been talking about is the, the idea of the hero, the, the hero story, the hero that will come and make everything good again. So we, we've done something wrong and we're looking for the hero. And that hero could be Greta Thunberg or the Paris Accord or it's all those big things. And this, this longing for the hero to come and save us is... As one, it's a great fallacy, it's a great danger in, in wanting that one to come back and make things good again. And it, solutions or the things that will be better will always come from much more the margin and the things we don't see and the things that are unexpected and uh, from the fringes. It's, uh, so, if, so looking forward, one shouldn't then put too much emphasis on, on the heroes uh, out, out there. Those, that, that's not where, where change really is uh, coming from, probably. So you're not you're not missing the heroes from your childhood, Jan. I don't know. Yeah, there's many things that we've we've talked about about that in the you know when we both started our careers working on climate change, we're pretty much taken for granted whether these were climate heroes, whether this was the idea of climate policy, the idea the international system would sort out climate change, and other actors weren't uh, you know necessary or even useful. Uh, many things have changed. Of course, the world that we, we live in has changed alongside that. I moved, um, I grew up in the south of England and I moved uh, to the north of England uh, about 20 years ago now. And yeah, you know, about a week or so ago, we had uh, three or four days of snow and it was really like, you know, everyone was really excited. But um, yeah, I couldn't remember when we moved here, it snowed, you know, a lot. <laughs> and we weren't quite so excited by it because it was like oh no I can't ride my bike in the snow and I have to you know English roads are not built for that and I had to uh, walk to work and all sorts of different things there was a time when my youngest daughter was uh, you know she was three I had to sledge her to school for like a week because there's so much snow around and I guess you know when I was growing up I mean there hasn't been that much snow in the in the south of England for a very long time. And I remember when, when Elodie, my oldest daughter, when she had just gone to the secondary school and we had a few days of snow and four people in her class had never seen snow before, even though they'd grown up their whole life in Britain. And that was, you know, cause they had lived in the south of England before and they had moved to the north recently. And that was really shocking to me that they had never had a winter where they had experienced snow on lying on the ground 
And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I have big regrets for that, for, uh, for those generations. I think that's, uh, you know, that is a shame that we have got to that point of, of, our, of the everyday climate. Yes, Johannes, I guess, have you observed some of these things in, in your lifetime, the things that you took for granted and now we can't experience or may not be able to experience soon? I think um, it's it's interesting with, I mean, every, every Swiss will have their skis and their sledges and those things in their, in their garage. And two decades ago, these were the things that were used over um, three months or so. And now there is a, a, a weekend or so where you can uh, go on go on the lakes uh, when they are frozen. So you really feel that people they watch the opportunity to do those stuff that are hardly not possible anymore. So they drop everything and just run out in masses to 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 ski for that weekend or that evening or to the lake on 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 the Saturday for yeah. It's it's like if it's if it's one of the last um, times you can do it. And, one of, and the f- next weekend is the weekend where you have the famous Swedish uh, Vasaloppet, which is a long distance skiing race every year. So it's 90 kilometers in Sweden, and it's re- usually around 20, 30,000 people doing it. This year with the pandemic, it's a bit more spread out. So less people every day, but over the course of a couple of weeks, people would do it. And for the last 10 years, it's they have never canceled it, but it's been on the border of canceling it. And it's only kept up through a lot of the to create the artificial winter. So artificial snow and saving the snow from last year. So where this artificiality of recreating our past climate is quite interesting and how important and the amount of resources that goes into making this. In, in the green landscape, you have this um, white winding ski ski slope where you can go down. So our technology so far saves us, but at some point, what you will probably gonna give up the idea of doing it. So or do it differently. Just bike it or run it and get to terms with that. The skiing is now is now gone. But as long as people have the equipment and the desire and the memories of it, I still I think they're going to grab the opportunity to to use it. Uh, as Harry says, it's it's strong, it's strong memories and cultural yeah. layers in all that. And uh, another colleague that uh, Johannes and I have worked with before, Simon Marvin, is currently doing a project on the creation of artificial outdoor environments because this is you know so in in some cities this is about making them habitable enough on really really hot days so this is about all the sprayed water that you get everywhere and the the artificial shading and then of course it's also about um the use of the the patio heaters in the times when those cities are now too cold when it shouldn't be cold you should be able to sit outside and so all of the ways in which we're going to try to hang on to effectively you know he would call it the holocene climate within the anthropocene so you're trying to recreate this kind of idea of the the climate that we used to live in in microcosms in in east of cities so he's interested in how the kind of holocene environment is being recreated in order to to enable people to live the life that they were used to in that in that context uh, even though the anthropocene may be for example in melbourne pushing temperatures 
over 45 degrees on very many different days in the in the city then they try to make it like air conditioning and cooled outside so you can inhabit the outdoor environment in the city as you used to do 20 years ago so yeah i think this is really this is a really you know now probably johannes and i will have to go away and develop a new project on, on the, a new set of imaginaries around uh, you know the keepers of the snow or something Johannes. that would be where we where we should go next <laughs> A museum, a museum of snow. This would be. <laughs> you should add it to your museum, Johannes. This was the last snow from this uh, famous Swedish race. It's been kept preserved in like you know deep in the deep freeze ever since then. We have a story of Swedish, uh, the ones uh, Swedish skiers who who became some. They started a, some kind of social movement around. They were standing in the countryside with the skiers on in, in the grass, and they were just. They're doing the demonstrations, walking in the hills without snow on with the skis, skis and, uh, and sticks on. And since they were such important Swedish characters, the skiers, and they always ad admires for their hardship and their, uh, you know, they were stubborn. And so they became their like unlikely, he unlikely demonstrators in the sense. Yeah, very good. Oh, well, I'm glad that they I'm glad that they get a look in. <laughs> Well, I guess in closing, if you're, you know, if you've given us many um, futures or you allowed us to imagine many, many futures, and if you were to um, have a message for the future citizens of your uh, inhabitants of uh, Notre Dame from your rough guide, or if you had uh, something that you would like uh, young people to know, preserve and remember. Hmm. I, I guess for me, it would be more about the fact that they should know that there are, you know, good lives ahead and that they, so it's less about, um, it's less about what they should know, preserve and remember, I think, but more a question of the fact that they should be uh, enabled to kind of create new kinds of, of low carbon life that, that are, you know, it's not that the best times are behind them and that, that uh, there are no good futures to be had. But also, I, I think they do need to know that the 1980s was a very good time, you know, that, that you know, they can always watch the films and listen to the music from the 80s if they need something from the past. But um, yeah, because, of course, that was the decade before we really knew about global environmental change, I guess. So um, maybe that's why I like the 80s yeah. or it could just be the music. Yeah, I mean, with... A lot, lot of the large-scale socio-technical changes are also happening behind the scenes so that people will take the things be for granted or being normal when they get there. So if you go back to the 1970s in Sweden and look to the things that we now take for normal, that could look as really disruptive and a really different world. And But when, you, when we're here in it, it's nothing disruptive to it all. It's completely normal, a lot of the things. So thinking ahead a lot of the things going to be very normal and accepted and it's not going to feel that strange at all. Thank you Harriet Buckley and Johannes Stippel for your work on Climaginaries and Narrating Climate Futures and so many other books and projects for envisioning societal transformation and transitions to a post-fossil world so together we can make a more sustainable future. Thank you for adding your voices to the One Planet podcast. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been fun. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Samantha Wynn with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Camila Rodriguez. 
Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown, and the theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thanks for listening.